You're listening to Amphibicast. This week's episode of Amphibicast is sponsored by the Active Conservation Alliance. The Active Conservation Alliance is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization promoting ecosystem conservation and restoration, the sustainable use and the welfare for wildlife and human communities living in balance. With a special focus on dart frogs, many of the Alliance's efforts work towards the conservation and reintroduction of wild dendrobatids into their natural habitat. To get involved and to donate, please visit activeconservationalliance.org or follow the links in the show description. You can also text ACA to 61094. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. You're listening to Amphibicast. I'm your host, Andrew Bates, and this week is going to be a continuation. Uh, I often say that uh, at the end of every episode that I always have more questions. I have a certain guest on. I say, you know what, I could just go on for hours and hours more. And um, I wanted to dig deeper into a topic, and uh, specifically amphibian veterinary medicine. And if you recall back in episode 115... I had uh, Dr. Robert Osiboff, uh, he goes by Oz, and we talked about amphibian uh, parasitology, we talked about pathology, we talked about the importance of having necropsies and fecals and whatnot, and uh, we talked about things in in kind of a general sense, and I wanted to dig more into the topic and address real-life cases, and uh, Oz has been kind enough to come back on again, and we're going to talk about a few cases of specific amphibian disease, we're going to kind of walk through uh, how it was, uh, what the initial presentations were, how it was diagnosed, symptoms, treatment, and uh, outcome. So if you've ever had an interest in amphibian medicine, you want to learn more about real-life cases that uh, may give some context to, you know, just amphibian medicine in general, we're going to cover all that. But um, before we do that, of course, thank you to the usual uh, usual places, usual people. Uh, thanks, everybody, for the nice star, uh, five-star reviews. We're almost up to 100 on Spotify so anybody who leaves a nice five-star review on Spotify, I thank you for that. And of course, Apple Podcasts and all the other podcast players. And if you'd like to support the show, a great way to do so is to just click on the link tree. You've got many different options there. You can um, become a patron. Of course, this is a great way to support the show. $5 a month tier, we shout out the beginning of an upcoming episode. But I also have tiers as low as a dollar a month if you want to just do a little something to say thank you. And I've also got a link to the merchandise store if you want to get some t-shirts, mugs, whatever you want. Uh, I've got some pretty cool amphibian swag up there. And of course, you'll get a discount off of a uh, in-situ ecosystems vivarium if you make a link through, excuse me, if you purchase through the link in the link tree show description. And of course, you'll also find a link in the link tree to the Active Conservation Alliance, which is currently sponsoring the show. If you want to get involved with dart frog conservation, an organization that's very, very specific, uh, focusing on dart frog conservation in South America, Click out, uh, check out that link, give it a click, and uh, if you have a few bucks, you know, by all means, go ahead and make a nice donation. So, all right, I've caught my breath. Oz, welcome back. How are you doing again? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm I'm doing. I'm doing well. I'm glad to have you back. So, uh, last, glad to be back. Yeah, last time we talked, we covered we covered quite a bit of ground, and um, afterwards, you and I were kind of talking back and forth, and we tossed around the idea of discussing some real-life cases, some real-life situations. And um, I kind of want to walk through. I've got a list here that you and I talked about, and um, I want to get into it. Why don't you tell us about, um, let's start with with metabolic bone disease, which is, I mean, I, I hate the acronym MBD because it's almost like, uh, so much more, so much more to it. It's basically like osteoporosis for frogs. 
Um, walk us through a case that involves uh, MBD. Tell us, tell us as much as you can. Well, first off, what, what is MBD? What is it first? So <clears throat> MBD, the acronym stands for metabolic bone disease. Um, and so metabolic bone disease is essentially um, a syndrome um, that represents any of a number of changes that can occur as it relates to the formation and maintenance of calcium in the bones uh, of an amphibian or a reptile. I mean, we see MBD in many, many different species for different reasons. And what would you say is the most common cause in, I should say, captive amphibians? Because, um, I mean, I don't know if it's seen in wild amphibians because maybe there's not as many people looking, but what's, what are some of the common causes that might have a frog develop MBD? So most often, um, <clears throat> frogs in captivity develop MBD due to improper supplementation of something. Um, and most oftentimes, it's improper calcium supplementation. Um, but sometimes you can actually see MBD as a byproduct of other um, vitamin deficiencies um, that then cause issues that are then, um, because of the lack of intake of feed uh, items uh, appropriately dusted, those animals also then start to experience low calcium levels. Um, and so essentially what happens in those conditions is that the frog doesn't take in enough calcium. Um, and so the calcium levels in their blood start to drop. And the, the frog's response, really any animal's response to low calcium levels in the blood is start to mobilize the calcium stores that they have. And so amphibians store calcium in two major places. Um, the one place they store calcium is uh, structures called endolymphatic sacs. And the endolymphatic sacs um, are these little outpocketings of actually from the inner ear that run down along the inside of the salomic cavity or the abdomen of a frog on either side of the spinal cord. Um, for listeners who are familiar with um, reptiles, and particularly geckos, you're probably familiar with the endolymphatic sacs um, from the swellings that you will see in the neck of female day geckos, the Felsuma genus. Um, uh, <clears throat> you can also see endolymphatic sacs uh, in the necks of toke geckos. Um, you can actually see them inside the mouth of some of the uh, some of the other geckos, like the crested geckos, the gargoyle geckos. Um, so the geckos and, and snakes, they do it kind of in their head, but frogs do it down along their back. Um, once that source of calcium is depleted, the only real place that frogs can pull calcium from then is their bones. And so as they start to mobilize the calcium in their bones, they are breaking down that strong hydroxyapatite matrix that, uh, that maintains the strength of the bone. What about the role of phosphorus? Because I often hear about, in terms of supplementation, the role of having a good calcium to phosphorus ratio. What, what exactly is phosphorus yeah. and how does that factor into MBD? Uh, <clears throat> so um, your, your calcium phosphorus ratio has to be appropriate to allow appropriate absorption of the calcium. 
Um, if you have an elevated amount of phosphorus, that is going to upset the, uh, the absorption of the calcium. So essentially, even though they may be taking in enough, they're not able to absorb that mineral. Uh, and then also it can trigger some other changes in the frog that will result in decreased calcium retention uh, in some of their organs, such as their kidneys. Interesting. So what's a real life case that you've seen involving, uh, MBD? Sure. So, um, <clears throat> you know, to start off, I'm just going to, to mention that, you know, uh, whenever I look at cases, um, that are submitted to me, all the details of everything are confidential. So the situations I'm going to give you are, um, except for one, which will become obvious when I tell you about it, um, they're slightly modified so as to protect the, the identities of anyone who may have submitted anything, you know, anything that goes on. And the same would be true if anyone were to ever send me a frog. But I think a good representative of this, I, I would say that on the whole, I see MBD cases more frequently from zoological institutions than I do from private hobbyists. Um, and I think that that's... Um, there's probably two reasons for that. One is that most zoological institutions are going to submit most of the animals that perish in their care for a necropsy of some sort. And, you know, not all hobbyists are going to submit every frog that passes away. Um, but I also think that on the whole, um, there's a lot of fantastic information out there for froggers, um, whether they are dart frog keepers, tree frog keepers, uh, horned frog keepers, you know, uh, any of the, <clears throat> any of the, the caudates, you know, there's really great information out there. And on the whole, most hobbyists do a really good job with, um, supplementation and maintaining their species. That's not always the case in all zoological institutions, particularly if you have, you know, say a smaller zoo that has a curator for the herp department that may not have as much hands-on experience with every single species that they need to work with. Um, and so this was a, a smaller zoological facility that had a exhibit of uh, Dendrobates erratus, <clears throat> and they were breeding, um, breeding those frogs. Uh, well, the frogs were breeding on their own and they were pulling the eggs and uh, raising up the tadpoles and then raising the froglets um, in bins outside of the main exhibit. And they were noting, um, you know, initially they were, uh, you know, in the history, it was presented that multiple froglets were coming out of the water um, with very short and defective front limbs. Um, so they really couldn't use their front limbs very well. Um, and then that the frogs that were coming out <clears throat> after several months um, would kind of have an abnormal posture. They would be a little more humped back in their appearance. Um, and so there was more of, a, of an angle and a curvature to their spine. Um, and their legs were not as straight as they should be. Um, and so they submitted a, a subset of those animals uh, to me for um, histologic examination. And so um, many of you out there who work with dendrobatids in particular, but also people who may work with different toad species, or um, it, it's less common in the tree frogs, but it can happen, are probably familiar with the syndrome called spindly-like syndrome. And so spindly-like syndrome is when the froglets, as they're uh, metamorpho metamorphosizing from the, um, you know, the late tadpole stage onto the stage on land, they're usually, it's their forelimbs, but it 
doesn't always have to be. Um, they're either poorly developed and very small and they don't move well, or they're sometimes even completely absent. Um, and the, the interesting thing about spindly leg syndrome is spindly leg syndrome is essentially a early form of metabolic bone disease. Um, and so when we looked at these animals under the microscope, um, both the older froglets as well as the, the um, fresh metamorphs with spindly leg, um, we saw a lot of changes in the bone. And um, spindly leg is a, is a really interesting disease in that anyone who has ever morphed out a spindly leg froglet knows that they really can't use those front limbs at all. They're kind of locked into a state of semi-flexion. So there's almost a 90 degree angle from the distal front limb to the humerus. Um, and that's because, believe it or not, the joint between the radius and the ulna or the bones of the distal forelimb and the humerus, which is the large bone of the proximal forelimb, were completely fused. There should be a joint space between those bones so that the limb can move. And there was no space. The cartilage of all of those bones had fused together. Um, and that can happen. The same thing can happen in uh, young frogs with metabolic bone disease. Um, they can, their joints can actually start to fuse um, and they can't move around a lot. Um, the other thing that you comment, we saw and you commonly see with frogs with metabolic bone disease is, as I mentioned before, to counteract the low calcium levels in their blood, they're going to start uh, mobilizing the calcium that is in their bones. And in doing so, they're increasing the chance that those bones are going to break with any sort of stress. Um, and the problem is in amphibians, reptiles, any species that has metabolic bone disease, if you break a bone and you don't have enough calcium to fix it appropriately, you just get this abnormal proliferation of tissue um, that never allows the bone to actually heal. Um, and that's what we found in all of the abnormal looking froglets and tadpoles that were submitted to us. That's interesting. I never even thought of spindly leg as being like a, an early, early, early form of um, MBD. That's interesting. Yeah, they're all, it's essentially, it's all a spectrum of the same syndrome. And again, because there are many different things that ultimately can result in abnormal calcium levels and cause MBD later down the line. Now, MBD, I mean, I've seen, I mean, as, as long as I've been keeping animals, like going on 30 years, I've seen, I've seen a few animals over the years that have had MBD, mostly reptiles. It's, I haven't seen many frogs that had it other than things I've seen posted online, but is there like different grades of severity, meaning can a frog have mild MBD and just sort of present as normal, meaning like, um, you know, the way certain people might have like, um, like degenerative, joint, uh, excuse me, <laughs> degenerative joint disease, um, you might be, you know, have very, very mild symptoms, may not be in a lot of pain, um, but someone who has a more severe case has, you know, more dramatic symptoms. Have you ever seen a, like a spectrum of MBD when you're when you're looking at um, samples? Absolutely, and uh, you know it. Um, you know, you mentioned the difference between reptiles and amphibians as it relates to MBD. And while um, I think there are lots of really strong arguments for the benefit of UVB light in amphibians. For the vast majority of amphibian species, while UVB light may be beneficial, it's not 100% necess necessary. 
um, at least as it relates for calcium metabolism and maintenance of normal calcium levels. For reptiles, that's absolutely not the case. And that's why you, you know, for the species that need UVB light, you know, thinking your lizards, um, thinking your, uh, your chelonians, uh, even your crocodilians, you know, when they don't have that adequate light in captivity, that's when they can get really severe MBD. Uh, and so the, the amphibian MBD, again, usually is associated with supplementation issues of some sort. And so you absolutely do see a spectrum because depending on, you know, if the supplements you were using started to degrade over time, and then you change them out at some point in the middle, and then they got fresh supplements, you may have cured the issue that was causing underlying MBD. And therefore that could be an animal that has a much minor issue. Um, but if you're using the same container of supplements for three years and not changing it out, there's the chance that if that container of supplements goes bad, say six, 12 months into it, you're continuing to use that same very ineffectual supplement for an additional two years. And you can see much more dramatic changes. Yeah. The UV thing is, I mean, I, I, you know, I know how people get a little, a little nutty and I, I don't want to you know, make a referendum about, you know, people choose to UV, use UV lighting, you know, there's different, there's different schools of thought on it. But I mean, I've, I personally have never had a frog have issues with, with visible, any visible form of MBD. And I've supplemented pretty, pretty consistently as long as I've been keeping. I mean, do you think that the supplements that are on the market, uh, well, actually, how let me back up a little bit. Um, a, a lot of the supplements that are on the market, especially for frogs, have D3 already in them. Is it problematic if someone uses UV lighting, or I should say UVB because there's a spectrum of UV lighting, but if someone uses UVB lighting and a supplement that has D3, can that be detrimental as well? Because I've seen people kind of come at it with, with both barrels when it seems like you could just get away with one, well, get away with just the supplement. I would say that, you know, for reptiles, absolutely. If you are using strong UVB supplementation and you are providing a vitamin D oral supplement, that can cause significant issues. Um, I think we know much less in amphibians as it relates to that. I have never seen a case of suspected vitamin D toxicosis in an amphibian that was being housed in a enclosure that provided UVB light, you know, unfiltered or, um, you know, UVB through appropriate transmitting glass or acrylic. So they actually were getting appropriate UVB levels and then also getting a supplement with D3 in it. That being said, if you are providing, you know, UVB supplementation, you certainly can forego the D3 in the supplement. Um, but again, I have, I had, I personally have not seen vitamin D toxicosis in a captive amphibian because of the administration of both. And in terms of diagnosis, um, I mean, obviously you get frogs that, that are, that are dead and you're examining them, you know, post-mortem. Is there a way to diagnose MBD visually, like just on an examination table? I mean, the, the thing about MBD is, uh, 
if you are truly in a state of metabolic bone disease where the, the calcium levels that the amphibian is experiencing are causing bony changes, you will visibly see that. You will see that in alterations of the conformation of the frog. You will see that in alterations in the gait of the frog. Um, and, and you, you know, you may also see it just in the overall, uh, you know, shape, you know, it, just the way it looks more than just beyond like the confirmation of the head or, but just standing back and looking at it, it's going to have just an, an abnormal posture and orientation, but that's usually, you're not going to see that until the late stages of the disease process. You should be more on the lookout for the early stages of hypocalcemia that are going to result in the long-term metabolic bone disease. Um, and one of the things that amphibians are really good at showing hypocalcemia or low blood calcium levels with is um, tremoring. You know, and frogs initially will present with tremoring, um, and then some of them will progress to full on seizure type behavior where they will outstretch, um, they will become very rigid. Um, and it is not a defense mechanism, it is they are actually undergoing. Uh, you know, spastic tetany in their muscles because they don't have enough calcium um, to maintain normal function. Interesting. That I've seen once. I had a wild-caught Ufaga familia blue jeans that just kind of deteriorated very, very quickly. And I did, it It. it did, it. that's exactly what it did. And um, I mean, I had been supplementing, but it's still, it kind of happened. Yeah, Pumilio, Pumilio, it's especially back in, you know, the latter half of the 2000s and then the early 2010s um they were notorious for that you know as the popularity of pomilio started to go up you know if you talk with some of the true old school froggers before pomilio um you know after the initial like nicaraguan blue jeans imports where you could get frogs for like 35 bucks a pop everywhere and then the complete shutdown you know there was a period in from the the mid 90s to the early 2000s where it was extremely difficult to come across pomilio um, and those animals did have issues with hypocalcemia and it was super super common for those animals with just a little bit of stress to outstress undergo uh you know a, a tetanic episode or a seizure-like um, behavior. Um, and then if you were lucky and you just left them alone, they recovered a little bit. Um, there, for a while, there was a, and I, I don't know if people still do this, but for a while when you had those frogs, the recommendation was to apply topical calcium gluconate to their backs um, because the idea was that would provide a pretty rapid um, source of topical calcium and sugar to kind of get them through that hump. And it works beautifully in the very immediate short term. Like you could reverse a frog out of that behavior, but it wasn't doing anything to fix the underlying problem. And what could you do long-term in a situation like that? You really, you, you have to reassess your, your husbandry. Um, you know, first thing is get rid of all of your supplements and buy new supplements. You should be purchasing new supplements um, every six months. Now, Honestly, with the calcium, um, that is not as big of a deal. I mean, the calcium carbonate that most people use to dust their, their feeders for their frogs is extremely stable. I mean, it's, it's going to last a long time. That's not necessarily the case with the D3 that comes with it, though. Uh, and so you need to replace that supplement. Um, you know, 
ideally every six months, and especially for your vitamin supplements. Um, you need those vitamins start to oxidize with time. Um, and if you think about the, the cost of your frogs and the health of your frogs, buying the $13 container of supplements twice a year is, it's not a huge thing. Um, and so it's, it's really important to do that because we do know that low levels of certain vitamins, especially vitamin A, can result to changes in the tongue that prevent frogs from eating appropriately. When they don't eat appropriately, their calcium levels then go down and you end up with a frog with hypocalcemia and hypovitaminosis A. So the, the zoo that sent you the frogs for necropsy, right? What was your recommendation yeah. to them in terms of what they needed to do to, to bring the collection around so that they would not be so um, disposed to have MBD? What were your, what were your recommendations? I mean, essentially in a situation like that, you know, I, I reach out to them directly and I set, schedule a zoom interview or a phone call and we walk through their husbandry. They tell me what they're doing. And then I, I work with them to identify places where there may be issues so that they can, uh, you know, fix them, uh, and then come up with a, a long-term plan and then, and try and check back in uh, a few months later down the line. And what about non-dendrobatids? I, I've seen a lot of people, um, you know, what is it? The, the dendrobatid world is a little bit higher level <laughs> than some of the other, um, uh, the other frog species communities. I hope it didn't offend anybody when I said that. Um, but like, let me give you an example on some of the, like the, the Pac-Man forums and whatnot, the Ceratophrids, yep. I, I see people... Mm -hmm constantly post my frog has mbd my frog has mbd my frog has mbd i often wonder is it is mbd it's either that common because of whatever reason or is it being overdiagnosed do you have any opinions on 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 those two theories i mean it's uh, it really depends on the husbandry of the individual species you know so for the ceratophries, uh, it's going to be very diet related and, uh, again, how the supplementation is being provided. Um, one benefit that the dart frog hobby has is that the food source for the majority of the species, at least as a primary food source, is a tiny little insect that is easily dusted in vitamin particle, you know, calcium and vitamin particles that adhere to that insect pretty readily. Um, and the frogs then go and eat those insects with some rapidity um, to get at reasonable doses of those that calcium and vitamin right off the bat. Um, if you're dealing with other species that you know have different feeding habits, um, you know, a lot of the the horn frogs, um, you know, depending on what the owners are choosing to feed, um, if they're feeding, if they choose to feed a, a rodent heavy diet, which is not recommended for multiple reasons, but if that decision is made and you're feeding uh, ceratophries with very small pinky mice, you, the, the calcium content of a pinky mouse is, is quite low um, because again, their bones really haven't mineralized all that much. They're mostly cartilage. Um, and so they don't actually have that high of, uh, of, calcium in them, but it's, it's hard to dust a pinky. The, the dust doesn't stick to a pinky. Um, and then if you have other feeders, you know, say a, you know, an earthworm earthworms, you know, they don't, they don't lend themselves well to dusting either. And neither do, um, 
you know, this, the, the tenebrio, the superworms and mealworms to some degree, but the, the, the dust does not stick. So animals that have slightly different diets do inherently make it more challenging. That being said, I, I do think that there is probably a bit of a, um, overinterpretation of certain things in certain species, particularly potentially, you know, the, the Pac-Man frogs that have a, you know, a very unique stance and it, it, it would be relatively hard to assess metabolic, very early mild metabolic bone disease in a species such as the ceratophores. So there may be, I, I, I am, I do not frequent forums like I used to, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, but, uh, I don't, to be honest, I don't even know if forums are still active or if everyone switched over to something else, but I, so I don't, I, I don't know, have the experience of what goes on with uh, some of the, the Pac-Man breeders. Um, but I can say that on my side of things, I have not been consulted um, by people with ceratophores being concerned about metabolic bone disease. Interesting. Yeah, I've noticed that a lot of Hmong, um, like I went back and looked at some of the older forums. I sh- I sh- I'm sorry, I should have like kind of prefaced that. Um, I went... You know, I just kind of went online and did a search, you know, Pac-Man frog MB. I mean, I hate, I hate the name Pac-Man because nobody has played Pac-Man since like 1985, but, um, I don't think it's like, I don't know. I don't know if that, that name works anymore. Pac-Man lives on through these frogs, but, um, all right. you know, old joking aside, uh, I went on some of the older forums, like, you know, just kind of did a Google search and just found, you know, pictures and requests and whatnot. And there was some stuff on Reddit. And, um, you know, people saying my frog is MBD, my frog is MBD. And I'm just trying to wrap my head around, you know, is it really as rampant as people make it out to be? Whereas like in the dart frog world, we're pretty much dialed in on supplementation. You know, there are certain, uh, everyone has their own preferences. And I mean, you know, Rapashi um, calcium plus is pretty popular. And also, you know, we're, we're only providing one prey item, the fruit flies, which like you said, they lend themselves really well to dusting. And maybe the, you know, the, the dendrobatid world has just kind of gotten a, a handle on that, maybe more so than other species. I don't know. It was just kind of arousing my, my curiosity. I just wanted to hear what you thought about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I want to move on to another topic here. And um, this is one of those things that's uh, kind of a, a dirty word, uh, chytrid. So... The floor is yours. Give us a case that involved chytrid and what happened. Sure. So um, <clears throat> I told you that one of the cases I would be a little bit more direct about, and chytrid is is going to be one of those cases. So, um, you know, I had uh, a large collection of dendrobatids um, up until about the uh, early 2010s, um, when I had to rehome my frogs because I had to move to New York City to work at the Bronx Zoo, and it just I at that time I had 50 plus tanks, and there was no way that that was going to make its way to a small New York City apartment. I would be able to keep up with it, um, so I made the the hard decision to rehome my frogs, um, and I stayed out of dendrobatids uh, until um, about five years ago, and um, I was really excited to finally have some time uh, to set up a couple of tanks, and I was going to limit myself to just a couple of tanks. And um, one of the species that I had always absolutely loved, um, but had never uh, been able to acquire in my earlier time with with dart frogs, but had become much more readily available, um, 
was uh, Erninamaya vanzellini. Um, beautiful, beautiful frogs. And so I wanted to have a group of Vanzelina, Vanzellini in a, in a nice uh, arboreal enclosure. And so I contacted, um, I contacted someone in the hobby uh, who had made some uh, Vanzellini available and I purchased them from, uh, from someone and uh, I got them and I was stoked. They were, they were absolutely beautiful frogs. And so, you know, I set them up in their temporary quarantine enclosures and uh, kept them, you know, to not overstress them. I kept them together as a group in a larger Rubbermaid tub, um, but didn't put them into the, the vivarium yet. Um, and they did well for about uh, three to four weeks. And then um, at about the four week mark, um, I found one of them dead in the tub. And uh, unfortunately, as is often the case with frogs, you find a frog dead, you found it 12 hours too late and the spring tails have done their way with most of the the tissue uh and so it was it was in a pretty bad state and it, it wasn't going to uh it wasn't going to really lend itself well to a necropsy um and so um i you know i i was bummed but you know sometimes you know we do lose frogs and so i did not think too hard about it until uh, a few days later, when I was feeding the frogs in the tub, I noted another frog um, start undergoing spasms, that hypocalcemia-like tetany that I, that I mentioned to you before, uh, and then completely outstretched, uh, and then it, it died. Um, and so the, the good thing was is that I was there, and so I, I saw it die. Um, I had a little bit of calcium gluconate. I tried to put some calcium gluconate on it and never responded. Uh, and so I was able to get that animal into fixative really quickly um, and uh, took it in with me to work, um, put it in for processing, and I got the slides back the next day. Um, and I you know, put the frog on the microscope wondering if I was going to see anything. Um, and it was covered in chytrid fungus, um, absolutely loaded. Like there was, there was no question why this frog died. Um, and so, um, I had two of them left, um, and I was able to, uh, treat the two remaining frogs with itraconazole. Um, the wonderful thing about chytrid infections in, in captive scenarios is we have really good treatments for chytrid. There's a num there's a number of options of chytrid treatments. Um, but you know, it, I, it was unfortunate that I lost those two frogs, um, before, uh, before I had the chance to treat them. Uh, and, you know, in retrospect, uh, it, I, I probably would have been better off with submitting a swab for, um, chytrid PCR. I mean, I do chytrid PCR in my lab all the time. Uh, and I didn't test the frogs. I, I trusted the person I got them from. These were not froglets. These were established, uh, it was a breeding adult group. Uh, and, and I thought, you know, all was, all was good. And, and, and unfortunately it wasn't. Um, and so, uh, Kitchard is in the hobby. It, it absolutely, without a doubt, is a in the hobby. It is not just a imported frog disease. Um, it, it, it's it's in it's in different collections. Um, it can be moved around. Um, as I mentioned, uh, it, the good thing is is that it's easily treatable. Um, and you know, Dan, you you actually said something at the at the very beginning that I think is. Um, or at the, at the beginning of this part of our, our talk that is really, really important and something that I hope changes. And that is, 
you know, you said the word chytrid and then you had that immediately negative reaction. It's like, oh, you know, this is something that, you know, people don't talk about. And, um, and you know, if this is a problem um, in the exotics hobby, you know, for reptiles, for amphibians, you know, um, if you were to talk to a farmer about, you know, let's say a dairy farmer and they have a herd of cows, that herd of cows will without a doubt have different disease processes in them. There will be some viruses circulating from time to time. There will be some parasites circulating from time to time. The farmers will do what they can to mitigate those diseases. But the fact of the matter is that disease happens. The, if disease happens, it doesn't make you a bad frogger. It does not make you – it. it when you're working with live animals, you are going to be exposed to disease scenarios. Uh, and it's it's entirely about how you as a hobbyist uh, and, you know, as a keeper of those animals, deal with that disease, how you screen for diseases, how you maintain your collection in terms of biosecurity. And then I think the biggest thing is what you do when you find out you have disease. Um, because it's all too common in both the reptile and amphibian side of the hobby that someone finds out that they have a disease and then that's it. They, they say nothing about it ever again. They don't ask for any advice. They don't, they, they essentially just want to bury it under the rug, pretend like it didn't happen because it, they don't want it to affect their business. And in some ways I understand that, but you know, I, in my opinion, the, the, the best herpers out there, the best, the best keeper of these species are the ones that recognize when they have these diseases and then they work to mitigate the effects of the disease and they work really hard not to further disseminate those diseases into the hobby. Oh, I agree a hundred percent. And I, I agree with you. You know, there's a lot of people that tend to feel ashamed or embarrassed or whatnot. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I, I always feel, you know, I, if I have an animal get sick and die or whatever, I always feel responsible because obviously I was the one who cared for it, but there's going to be certain yeah, things and, that and, are, yeah, that are outside of your control. Yep. And that's, and that's it. You know, we all feel guilty when that happens because like you said, it, it's our responsibility. Um, but the fact of the matter is 98% of the time, if you have a disease event in your collection, it probably was not your fault. It, you know, animals, animals have parasites, animals have viruses, animals have fungi. Some of them are more pathogenic or ability to cause significant disease more than others. Uh, and so it's all about how we screen our animals, how we quarantine our animals, how, how, you know, we test and, and, and isolate and it, we can work around all those things, but just because you had a frog get sick and die because of a disease, it does not make it your fault. No, I think that that's a great, you know, that's a great attitude that people should embrace is like, it's, it's like having children, you know, you have, you have kids, kids are going to get sick, you know, things are going to happen. And despite yep. your, your best efforts as a parent, you take them to the doctor and you, you have to say to somebody else, look, I, you know, I need you to help me. You know, help my kids get better, help my spouse get better, help me get better. And there shouldn't be any shame in that. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, and 
And I, you know, I, I, to be honest, I should have known better. I should have, I should have screened those frogs from the very start. And, um, I didn't, and you know, it, unfortunately I lost two frogs because of it. Um, and that, you know, so we, you know, we talked about the, 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 the symptoms. So chytrid in frogs, um, can be extremely vague. Um, chytridiomycosis, which is the disease caused by the amphibian fungus Betrachochytrium dendrobatidis, or BD fungus, um, can present in, in a number of different ways. And I've seen it in captive amphibians present in a variety of ways. Um, with BD infections in amphibians, there's kind of a spectrum of things. So, uh, there are species that are very, very resistant to clinical disease due to BD infection. Um, so a lot of the ronid frogs are like that. You know, bullfrogs are are well known to be able to carry BD infections and really not get disease from it very often. Same thing goes for the xenopus. Xenopus uh, xenopus can die from BD, but most times they have BD. If they have BD, it's at low levels, maintained in their skin. They can infect other amphibians and then cause you know mortality in those other species, but they themselves don't. Uh, they don't, don't really die from it. Um, then you have your other species that are kind of in the mid range of susceptibility. Um, they will get BD infections. Um, if the BD infection lasts long enough, um, it will ultimately kill the frog. Um, but there is kind of a, a an open window um, where you will start to see uh, changes associated with that fungal infection. And so BD fungus is an interesting fungus in that it just infects the outer layers of the frog or salamander's skin. It doesn't really extend down much deeper than that. Um, and so, and there's very little inflammation to the fungus. Um, the reason the frogs die is because their skin gets too thick and they have too much keratin present on their skin. And that means that then the skin can no longer move electrolytes across its surface. It can no longer adequately move water across its surface, and it can't move oxygen and carbon dioxide across its surface. Um, with that hyperkeratosis, that thickening of the keratin layer of the skin, um, in some frog species, it's actually really easy to see that happen because um, I have a, I, when I give a lectures on BD to vet students, I have a really nice picture uh, from a case that I had, I had seen many, many years ago from a frogger. Um, and it, it was a uh, Leucomelis, a British Guiana banded Luke. And everywhere on that frog where you were supposed to see the beautiful black pigment, it had become a milky white gray. And that's because you were actually seeing the hyperkeratosis of the skin. If that frog was uh, tan or light green or whitish, you would never see that. But the nice thing is you can see it in some of the dart frogs. And you know, if you see that in the frog, you can easily step in at that time and, and, and initiate treatment. Then you have the uh, incredibly susceptible species. And these are the species where if they look at BD cross-eyed, they have a high chance of dying and they die really quickly. And so the species that are kind of the, the hallmarks for this highly susceptible group um, are uh, definitely the Adelopus, 
Um, that's why Adelopis uh, has been hit so incredibly hard by BD in the wild. Um, the, the majority of extinctions as it relates to amphibians due to BD in the wild are in Adelopis. Um, the glass frogs are another one, the hyalinobatracheum, those frogs, um, the, what they will die, the, what they will die from in regards to a BD infection and the changes in their skin, most other frogs would just laugh at and continue to live for a very long time. Uh, and so when you're dealing with those frogs, you really, you don't have a heads up. You're just going to have dead frogs. And so um, that's why it's really important when, when that situation happens that you either have necropsies performed or you swab skin and send that skin swab in for, for BD or chytrid PCR. It's interesting you mentioned Adelopus and the, the glass frogs. Uh, they all kind of, they both kind of occupy that sweet spot where chytrid really is like, like, I was talking to Brian Gratwick about this and he was, I asked him, I was like, why do they get it? And he goes, well, they live right in this area where chytrid just does, it's the right temperature, the right humidity. And then just yeah. for some reason you got species that are just so susceptible to it that live there. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So here's a question for you. Um, the case you just mentioned, the tetany. Now, how mm -hmm. do we know, obviously, obviously, you know, you, you saw chytrid. What was the, like, can you de definitively say it was chytrid or was it something like that happened independent, independent of chytrid or was compounded by it? Meaning could there have also been a deficiency that caused that in combination with the chytrid or was the chytrid the definite cause of death? I mean, you can't ever, I guess, 100% rule out, especially if the frog has just been in your, your, your collection for a short amount of time and, and, and knowing about husbandry. But um, we know that chytridiomycosis can absolutely be fatal. Um, and we can gauge how bad the response to the BD fungus is going to be based on the degree of changes in the skin uh, cells. And so, uh, when the skin cells become very proliferative, uh, it's called epidermal hyperplasia. Uh, and so then that makes the total thickness of the skin increase. And then that also results in the production of more keratin at the very surface of the skin. And that causes the thickness of the, the keratin increase again, causing a net increase in the, in the thickness of the skin. Um, when you look at that under the microscope, um, there is there's not a lot of uh, ability for you know that skin thickness to change, uh, but when I looked at my frog under the microscope, there was no question that skin was so incredibly altered that that absolutely would have been fatal. Um, and so you know that's that is the challenge with these infections is that they are you know they can be absolutely silent until you have a dead frog. And again, these th these fungi in the, the very superficial layer of the skin, they're not causing any inflammation. They're not causing any of those changes. So, you know, if you were to, you know, have a minor skin infection, you would see redness all around where that infection was. And that's because you have an inflammatory response. Um, essentially, frogs, frogs with chytrid um, are dying due to the mammalian equivalent of a ringworm infection without inflammation. And so in, in a dog or a cat or even in a human that has ringworm, 
which is also a fungus, even though it's called ringworm, it's due to a fungus, you have that infection of the skin and the hair shafts, um, but then there's inflammation to it and it, it kind of neutralizes it. The frogs do not mount much of an inflammatory response in the classical cellular inflammatory response way to that fungus. And so their skin doesn't get right. You, you can absolutely miss these just like I miss them in my own frogs. Interesting. I love that. That's a, that's a perfect analogy. I like that. So moving on, I mean, I know we, we could talk about chytrid for, for a long time, but um, I wanted to move on to the, the next case. And um, nematodes, specifically, it's strongyloides, right? Or did I, did I butcher the pronunciation yeah. again? Nope, strong, yeah, you're perfect. Strong okay. All right. Nematodes is another one of those. I mean, I know that there's there's thousands and thousands and thousands of species of nematodes. They're, they're ubiquitous. They're everywhere. But it's another one of those things where people tend to talk about in very, very generalized terms. And people say, well, I have nematodes in my tank and I have, um, you know, are my frogs infected? Is it just the tank? I mean, what, what can you tell us about that whole um that whole angle like what what's a case where you've experienced that sure so we're going to break from for all of the non the non dart frog people we're going to break from the dart frog cases and, and i'm going to talk about a gr- uh, a group of of frogs maintained in a group enclosure again at a zoological facility uh, and we're going to talk about agalignus uh, ani or the blue-sided leaf frog and so this was a group of agalignus that were maintained in a large uh vivarium as a group setup um and it was it was a very nice enclosure you know decked out to the nines these frogs had lots and lots of space um the exhibit had existed and been set up for quite a long time at this zoo uh, and there had been you know kind of a a baseline mortality of the agalignus in there and they would just you know replace them as they died um and which is which is not uncommon in zoos uh and so um, this zoo had noted that, um, they were starting to see a number of the agalignus in the, uh, enclosure become extremely thin. Uh, and so they could, they were starting to see the bones of the spinal column and the urostyle, uh, and the legs a little more prominently. Um, and so then they had, um, they had a frog die, uh, and they submitted that frog for necropsy. Um, and so we, uh, you know, we did an necropsy on the frog and, um, we didn't see much on our initial examination of the frog other than it was extremely thin. So it had no fat bodies whatsoever. Um, so for those of you who have ever, uh, lost a frog and decided to, you know, potentially open it and look at it yourself, uh, frogs maintain their fat in these yellow finger like projections called the silomic fat bodies. And those are probably right in about the middle of the salomic cavity, living just on top of the kidneys and either the ovary or testicle, depending on the sex of the frog. Um, and if you have a really fat frog, it's because it has lots of these really plump, fat-laden fat bodies. But when frogs become really thin over time, those fat bodies absolutely disappear. So this frog had no fat bodies. The other thing that you can use to tell if a frog is in really thin body condition is their liver starts to shrink. So their liver gets small and it gets very dark brown to black in color. And that's because, you know, there's some cells in the liver have pigment in them uh, and the hepatocytes will then start to shrink 
uh, and they will make the cells with pigment in them get closer together, and that makes the liver look darker brown black. Um, so we knew this animal had a chronic negative energy balance. It was eating, but it just was not able to absorb its nutrients. Um, and that was really on the whole, um, kind of the end of our, our gross exam. And so we, uh, we prepared the frog to be examined under the microscope. And when we looked at the glass slides, um, in the intestinal tract, there were, uh, moderate numbers of very, very small nematode parasites, worms, um, in the intestinal tract. Um, and then the key for the diagnosis for these worms is in addition to the small worms, there were also lots and lots of little baby worms or larvae. Um, and those baby worms were migrating through the wall of the intestine causing extensive inflammation and necrosis. So the intestine was not able to do its job of absorbing nutrients, which is why the frog was so thin uh, and actually had ruptured through the intestine into the salomic cavity or the abdomen of the frog and had caused extensive inflammation in the abdomen. Um, and so you mentioned earlier the you know the discussion of nematodes. You know, lots of nematodes. There's soil nematodes. Your tank has nematodes, and all of those things are are absolutely true. Um, and when we think about nematodes in amphibians, there are two main types of nematodes, and they're pretty closely related. Uh, that are of the most concern to me, uh, based on the diseases that I have seen in frogs submitted. Um, and those are the rhabdius worms, and the rhabdius worms are commonly called lungworms. And then their close cousin are the strongyloides worms, also sometimes called threadworms. Um, and the threadworms and the lungworms, the strongyloides and the rhabdius, um, are almost indistinguishable on a uh, under the microscope, uh, either by histology or even morphology. The only way to really tell the two parasites apart is to identify where the adults live. So for the rhabdia species, the adults live in the lung. And for the strongyloides species, the adults live in the intestine. Uh, and then the only other way is that one of the larval stages of the parasites, the L3 or the infective stage of the larva in strongyloides has a tiny little hook on its tail and that hook isn't present in lungworms. It's not present in rhabdias. Um, but it, to be honest, it doesn't really matter whether you have strongyloides or rhabdias. The end results are about the same. And why these parasites are so incredibly important to people who keep amphibians in captivity is that they have two different life cycles. So the parasites, um, and, and this is really important whenever you talk about parasitic disease of any species, you need to know what the natural life cycle of the parasite is. It's because for some parasites, like flatworms, like trematodes or tapeworms, they often need what's called intermediate hosts. And that means they need to inf infect another animal, whether that's a, it could be a vertebrate, it could be a mollusk, it could be a snail, it, it could be any of a number of different things, but they need to infect other animals first and then be eaten by the end host to complete the life cycle. These strongyloides and rhabdius nematodes don't need to do that. They're direct developing parasites. So that means they can complete their life cycle 
um, just in the frog. So that means that you can have continual infections. Um, and that would be, if that was just it, that wouldn't be that bad because if you had a frog with that infection, you could treat it with an antelmintic or an anti-parasitic drug and hopefully clear the infection. The problem with rhabdius and strongyloides is that they're able to replicate both in the frog as well as in the environment. And when we have amphibians in closed vivaria, those parasites then can establish a cycle of breeding in the substrate of the tanks and then reinfect the frogs. And that results in a process called a superinfection or a hyperinfection. And it's in those superinfections and those hyperinfections that we see the most significant damage in captive amphibians. Um, because they get really high levels of larva. The larvae start migrating a lot of places they shouldn't. They damage the intestine. The frogs can't absorb the nutrients from their uh, what they're eating. They start to get very thin. And then, as I mentioned, sometimes they actually just extend to places where they're not supposed to be, and you get really, really severe inflammation. And is this something that you could see visually? Like, is a frog going to look a certain way if it's... Well, I mean, you mentioned... I'm, I'm sorry, I know you... I totally went off tro totally went off topic. I was going back to dart frogs, I should say. I know this particular case did not involve dart frogs, but you know, if you've got Phyllobatia yeah. tinctoris, can yeah, you see that or you, that you it's it is, you know, what is very common for many people who have amphibians, you just have a thin frog that cannot put on weight despite a ready appetite. And, you know, that that doesn't always mean that it's going to be a strongyloides infection. There's a lot of things that can do that. Uh, you know, in dendrobatids in particular, there seem to be some frogs that, you know, they just kind of get to this stage where they're losing weight. And then no matter what you do, you can't stop them from losing weight. And, you know, I've looked at many frogs like that. And uh, you can't really find out a reason why. Um, so there, are, you know, just because you have a thin frog does not mean it's because you have one of these parasites. But this is an important rule out if you have frogs that are losing weight uh, is to look for these parasites. And again, you know, these are tiny, tiny worms. You will, if you know, if you are, you say, oh well, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut open my frog and see if I can see the worms in the intestine. You will not see these worms. They are absolutely minuscule. If you look at the feces under the microscope, you can see them. Um, and that's one of the, the big things that, you know, when a fecal is done to look for these parasites, you can find the larva, but you can also find little eggs that contain the larva inside. So that over, they're called embryonated ova. So that the larva is in the egg, but it hasn't hatched out yet. Uh, and there aren't a lot of parasites that develop that way. But both lungworms and threadworms, the rhabdius and the strongyloides, do that. So when parasitologists look at amphibian fecals, um, those are kind of the top two species um, that, that that they should be considering if they see those organisms. Uh, and then again, you know, it, it, it you need to have serious discussions about what to do in regards to husbandry and or treatment. Now. Again, this case obviously involved animals in a zoo, like you said, a very big, large, established enclosure. What was the, the outcome once you, you gave them this diagnosis? Well, so this is, um, 
this is a hard conversation to have with a zoo or it's a hard conversation to have with a hobbyist who has, you know, spent a lot of money on this absolutely spectacular display vivarium. Uh, and you have essentially at that point, two options. And option one is you tear the entire thing apart. You scrap all of the substrate, you autoclave or heat everything. So it kills the worms and, you know, you bleach your plants to the best of your, your ability. Uh, and then you start from the ground up after you have done multiple rounds of, of anti-parasitic drugs in the frogs that you want to put back into the enclosure. Uh, and you need to have multiple negative fecal exams to ensure that you're not putting infected frogs back into the tank or, three to five years down the line, you're probably going to be running into the same problems. Um, that is a, you know, that's a, that's a big undertaking. That is often a big ask. And so uh, your other option and, and, and uh, sadly, a lot of people do this. It's a very common thing in the fish world too, with diseases like mycobacteriosis or things like that is you just replace the animals when they die with new animals, knowing that they're probably only going to have a certain amount of life before uh, they're going to succumb to the same type of infection. I see. And obviously that's, you know, that's just part of like having a large collection in management. I mean, that's yeah. kind, of, kind of, kind of unavoidable in, in those situations, but. Well, yeah. So the, the you can avoid it and i think that's that's where you know it's it's really really important whenever i mean you should do this all the time but especially if you are setting up like your showpiece your your showpiece vivarium and it's you've spent all this money on this tank and all the plants and it's it's plumbed for misting and you've got you know fog and all have you know keep your frogs in quarantine for a little bit longer, submit samples for fecal analysis so that you can make sure that the frogs you're putting into that tank are clean, um, because otherwise, you know, you're going to run into this problem down the line. And it is, it is, uh, this is by far the parasite that concerns me the most in captive amphibians. I see it over and over and over again in frogs from zoos, frogs from hobbyists, many different species. This is this is clearly one of the most important uh, parasitic diseases of amphibians. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'll date myself a little bit, but you know, when I was, when I was starting off in the dart frog hobby in the days of dendro board and dart den and, and um, you know, it's frog net was still alive at that point, but you know, it, it was still, you know, dendro board and dart den, the parasite everyone always wanted to talk about. And uh, for one reason or another was coccidia. Everyone, oh, frog has coccidia, frog has coccidia, frog has coccidia. I will tell you right now that in, I have looked at hundreds, if not thousands of frogs, the number of coccidia cases I have seen, I could count on less than two hands. Uh, but I don't have anywhere near enough hands to count the number of Strongyloides rhabdius cases I've seen. Um, this is easily the most important parasite of captive amphibians and one that will ultimately cause frogs to, to lose weight and, and die if it's not dealt with. Now, what's a common way that infection is spread? Obviously, we're talking about inside the tank. It's going to, you know, become a, a cycle where it's just going to continually spread. Um, I mean, can animals get it from diet? I mean, from feeder insects? Like, can feeder insects carry them, or do they? Does it piggyback in on plants? Like, how did you? Like, if you had a closed system, how could you potentially introduce it 
I mean, obviously, I'd be accidentally, but how could you potentially bring it into your uh, system if you're not adding another frog? Um, the if you have one tank and you have a group of frogs and you you had them tested or you end up lucky and they're negative, you won't you won't introduce it. You not unless you are you're getting things from other people that have frogs. Um, the most common way that it is moved within collections um, is plant cuttings um, or movement of cage furniture, you know, pieces of wood that were in one tank and you decide to strip a tank down, but you like the piece of wood and you put it in a new tank, uh, moving, you know, you, you move some leaf litter because it has some microfauna. So you move that from tank to tank. The microfauna themselves can carry it. If you're moving isopods or springs from one tank to another, the, it is it's so easy to move these tiny little larvae. Uh, you know, you're not likely, you know, it's not like a virus where you could, you know, potentially spread it by, you know, just touching something and then taking your hand. The, the, the larvae are resistant, but they're not that resistant. But any type of moisture and organic material from one tank to another, and you will easily move this through an entire collection in no time. That's why I keep my biosecurity so strict. <laughs> yeah. Every, it's, it's really important, but you know, and it's like you said, little, I mean, it, it, it's completely innocuous in your head to, you know, Oh, look how great that plant's doing. I'm just going to take a short cutting of the, of that vine and put it in my new tank that I'm setting up. And it's, you know, if you don't, if you're not exposed, if you don't learn about these things, that is a completely rational thing to do for most reasons, but it, it easily moves diseases from one thing to another. So yeah, very strict biosecurity goes a long way in a collection of animals. So I want to move on to another, another parasite, Entamoeba. And you mentioned that there was an interesting case with a large breeding facility that, that focused, I mean, we're getting back to Ceratophorus again. Why don't you tell us about that? What, what, what happened in that situation? Yeah, so this was a um, this was a breeder of uh, amphibians, uh, non-dendrobatid amphibians. Um, they had, uh, you know, quite a, a large breeding uh, population of uh, red-eyed tree frogs, Agalignus caligris, um, and they also did breeding of ceratophrys. And um, you know, ceratophrys are, are they can be kind of explosive breeders. So if you've got a breeding season, you can end up with lots and lots of animals. And uh, you know, at at the time. Um, you know, this, this breeder had, uh, nearly a thousand froglets of, uh, ceratophrys going, um, nearly about the same age, you know, all, you know, somewhere in the, uh, two to four weeks out of the water, uh, mostly. Um, and they started seeing some animals, uh, die and it, you're going to have some baseline mortality with that animals, but they, then they noticed, a. a a spike in the deaths and the deaths started to continue. Uh, and so this breeder reached out to, um, a couple of people about what was going on. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we, when, whenever you have, you know, a large scale mortality event, and this is not, you know, we're not talking about, you know, you've got one animal that dies and then maybe a week later you, the die, we're talking about each day, dozens of dead animals, um, you know, that, that's a slight, we deal with that in a slightly different way. That's there's a lot more urgency and you, you cast a much wider net at the outset. Uh, and so 
um, we've talked before about how quickly um, amphibians rot after they die. Uh, and when you're dealing with this type of mortality event and you have a substantial number of affected animals, um, the best thing to do is often provide animals that are clinically ill uh, and then we euthanize those frogs. We do diagnostic necropsies on them to really get a good idea of what's going on to then help fix the problem in the system. And so that's what we did in these frogs. Um, you know, we did complete necropsies on freshly euthanized animals. Um, we worked, you know, we inoculated samples for bacterial culture in case we were dealing with a nasty gram negative bacteria like Aramonas. Um, we did, uh, we had frozen samples uh, in case, you know, we were dealing with something we didn't really know about. We tested samples for ronavirus, which is a really important viral disease of amphibians that can cause uh, substantial mortality events. And then, uh, you know, we processed animals for histopath so we could look at them under the microscope and um so uh we looked at you know multiple of these frogs under the microscope and the one common thing that all the frogs had was some very severe inflammation in the large intestine um, and associated with the inflammation in the large intestine were these little round parasites uh, and the parasites are called uh, entamoeba and so um, entamoeba are um, par uh, parasitic protozoa. And if, uh, if any of the listeners are uh, familiar with the reptile side of things, you may be more familiar with entamoeba because entamoeba can be a really severe cause of disease in uh, different reptile species. Uh, we see it in lizards. We see it in turtles. Uh, we see it sometimes in snakes. Um, and that entamoeba is called entamoeba invadens. And that entamoeba infects the intestine, goes right up to the liver, and you get lots and lots of, of dead reptiles in a short amount of time. Um, some reptiles carry or are presumed to carry entamoeba invadens, and so they're more resistant to it. But uh, And so a lot of times you can think about that. Uh, so tortoises sometimes are suggested to carry entamoeba. Sometimes different turtle species can carry entamoeba. Um, but if it gets into other reptiles, then it can cause very severe disease, and it wipes out the liver. So these organisms in the frogs look like entamoeba invadens that we see in reptiles, um, but they were different in that they never went to the liver. They only stayed in the large intestine and they caused really severe inflammation of the large intestine that was so severe that it ended up uh, killing these frogs. Secondary bacterial infections happened, um, but you know it was this parasite that was killing the frogs. Um, and this parasite wasn't, when we did this work, you know, this parasite was not really well documented in frogs at all. Um, and so when we do this, we, when I have a new type of disease, you know, I do PCR and sequencing to determine, you know, the genetic sequence of the parasite to compare it to other things. We do special stains to highlight features of it. Um, and when we did that workup, we found that this parasite was actually and the exact same parasite that had just been described earlier in the year in invasive cane toads or Rhinella mar uh, marina in Australia. And in Australia, they would find that the cane toads during periods of drought um, would start to die, uh, or a subset of them would, and they had this entamoeba parasite in their intestine. 
And so um, it wasn't clear whether the cane toads brought this parasite with them to Australia, whether the cane toads were getting the parasite from the Australian frogs and it was causing them to die, um, or if it, no, it, it, it's something new that was introduced to all of the frogs in Australia at some point, um, because this parasite had never been described before. Now, we know Entamoeba existed before this. There is an Entamoeba ranarum, or you know, the, the frog Entamoeba. Um, but that's, it was always a background thing found in fecal samples. There was not much really disease associated with it. Um, and so we wanted to determine you know, exactly what, how important this disease was in captive amphibians. Because we've got this large outbreak of um, entomobiasis in this colony of uh, horned frogs. Um, we have wild frogs in Australia with, uh, with entomoeba. So we wanted to know how important it was in captive amphibians. And so um, a colleague of mine uh, runs a very large mail-in pathology service that a lot of different zoos use, and he's been doing it a long time. So we were able to go back and search through his archives for cases that you know, were similar to what we were seeing. Uh, and then we, we ran PCR and, and sequenced the parasites. And we found out that this entamoeba, which doesn't really have an official name yet, um, it, it's in different places. It's either listed as the cane toad entamoeba, or um, that's usually, it, it's referred to as the cane toad entamoeba, but it's not the cane, it's not the cane toads entamoeba. The cane toads just had it. Um, but we found it in captive frogs going all the way back to 2004. So this entamoeba has been out there circulating and it's probably been causing disease in captive amphibians. Um, and it's probably been killing a, a decent number of frogs. Um, and it's just, it's one of those things that if amphibians that die aren't submitted for necropsy for a full workup, it's, it's these types of diseases that we miss. And it's, it's really unfortunate because the nice thing about entamoeba, or at least if you're not dealing with entamoeba invadens, is that entamoeba as a group are very susceptible to metronidazole, which is very common. I mean, most of you all have probably heard of metronidazole or flagell is the common name. Metronidazole is used commonly on the aquarium side of things all the time. Metronidazole is commonly used in pets. You know, it, metronidazole is a very widely used drug, and it so therefore it's something that that the standard routine hobbyist can easily treat. It's just been missed as a diagnosis for for all of this time, uh, and so you know this is again it's just one of those things that it, we do not know as much about amphibian diseases as we really need to. Uh, and the same thing is true for, for reptiles. And the only way we're going to get better at that is if we, we just keep looking at animals when they're sick or die so that we can identify these things and save future animals. It seems like the more eyes you have on things, the more you're going to find. And um, it's one of those yep. things where, I mean, years ago there was, I mean, way, way, I mean, like people who were st getting started out in the hobby. I mean, I hate to break, I hate to break this to all of you, but it was, we knew nothing, you know, in the eighties and nineties and nothing. And, you know, every, every, every frog that died always had, the term was red leg and the not, yeah. the not, which is not a disease in itself. It's, it's a symptoms, but, um, the knowledge base has increased, but it's, it's amazing like how little we actually 
know in comparison to human medicine or um or mammalian veterinary medicine absolutely now earlier on um and this is on my list but you you'd mentioned it i think in relation to fish um mike mycobacteriosis what um what can you tell us about that mycobacteriosis is um mycobacteriosis is you know if we talk about strongyloidiasis or strongyloides infections is but you know being the the thing that i worry most about in terms of amphibian parasites that you can do active screening for and prevent and stop these super infections mycobacteriosis is on the other side of the spectrum and the fact of the matter is is that much like everyone who has been has spent some time in the aquarium hobby um you, it is inevitable that at some point you are going to deal with mycobacteriosis. And the same is, you know, if you have more than just three tanks of dendrobatids um, and you keep them for more than 10 or 15 years, um, you're going to experience mycobacteriosis, unfortunately. Um, mycobacteriosis is infection with any of the, the bacterium that all used to be called, uh, mycobacterium. Uh, and so the genus has now actually been split up into multiple different genera. Uh, and so the names are gradually changing. They all start usually, I think almost all of them still start with myco, but they, you know, there's mycolisobacter, uh, there's mycobacteroides. So th- of course, phylogeneticists, you know, people do phylogeny have to change name things all the time. Um, the, the, there is a good reason for why they do this, but what it, what it ultimately boils down to is mycobacterium are common in the water. They are common in the environment and infections of fish, amphibians, and reptiles with mycobacteria are going to happen. Um, and Oftentimes, mycobacteriosis in an animal um, is a subclinical disease. And so they will have low numbers of granulomas, which are foci of inflammation that we see most, you know, the most common type of inflammation in fish, reptiles, and amphibians. Um, And they're composed predominantly of the cell type called a macrophage. And mycobacterium have to live within that macrophage. And so they live within the macrophage and they start to divide. And so they exist inside of this granuloma. So the the amphibian's response to the bacteria is to wall it off and keep it isolated. And they do a really good job of that uh, until there is some stressor to the system. And so we commonly see clinical cases of mycobacteriosis, uh, you know, following um, introduction of a new individual to a tank of established other frogs. And that introduces stress into the system. That stress will cause immunocompromise in the frogs. They're not able to hold back that mycobacterium uh, as well as they were before. And that's when the bacteria really starts to replicate spread throughout all the parts of the frog's body. Um, and that's when you have animals ending up dying with mycobacteriosis. So how does mycobacteriosis look in amphibians? Um, 
And so, as I mentioned, the main inflammatory response to the bacteria is granulomas. And so, they start to have granulomas accumulate in all of their different tissues. Um, they'll get granulomas in the liver. They'll get granulomas in the lung. They'll get granulomas in the kidney. Um, and you know, you have a threshold in those organs where you can lose a certain percent of the cells and that organ can still work. But once you cross the threshold and enough of that organ is replaced by the granulomas, those organs don't start to work as well anymore. Uh, and that's when you then start to see animals getting sick, losing weight and, and dying because of this. But you can't see the granulomas in the liver or the kidney or the spleen or the lung, you, you can't see any of those uh, from the outside of a frog. But what we commonly see in, in all amphibians um, is when they have really severe mycobacteriosis, they start to get these uh, areas of raised skin, um, particularly in the, the legs or the thighs, um, and they are slightly raised. They're usually grayish in color. They don't have the normal skin pigment. And sometimes they appear reddened because of the uh, ulceration and then the hemorrhage and inflammation that's happening in there. Um, and unfortunately, when you see that type of lesion, um, there, there isn't anything you can do. Um, so mycobacteriosis uh, as a disease is an insidious disease. Uh, it comes on, you know, slowly over time and then just kind of explodes. Uh, there is no effective antimicrobial treatment that is available for, uh, for the animals that have it. So once an animal has it, it's really just a, a time game of when it's going to die from it. And the other unfortunate thing is, if you have an animal from a tank that has other frogs in it and one of those animals dies because of mycobacteriosis, you're almost absolutely guaranteed that every other frog in that tank is already infected with mycobacteriosis and it's only a matter of time before everyone will ultimately die because of it. Um, and there's, there's nothing you can do. The infectious dose, um, I haven't looked it up recently, but I have this in a slide, a PowerPoint presentation I've given for a long time. The infectious dose is about 23 bacteria. So you need 23 bacteria to infect another animal. And each cell, because I told you that these bacteria have to live inside a macrophage, each macrophage has about 25 bacteria in it. So essentially it's one cell is needed to infect another frog. So this thing, it's very resistant in the environment. It's present everywhere. If you, Mycobacterium marinum is one of the most common mycobacteria that affect amphibians. And as its name suggests, Mycobacterium marinum is in the water. And, and so Mycobacterium is everywhere. Um, you know, these Mycobacteria, they're, they're called the atypical Mycobacteria because uh, many, listeners may be uh, familiar with uh, TB or human mycobacteriosis due to mycobacterium tuberculosis. Uh, and so TB is, you know, a mycobacterium. It's just a, a very specific subgroup of mycobacterium that infects mammals. The mycobacteria that infect the reptiles and the amphibians and the fish are from, you know, they're very diverse from all over the place um, and they cause a different disease uh, than what we see TB in humans. That's wild. I, 
Yeah, I, I'm I'm online and I'm looking at the images of the legions. Look, this one looks like it's in Xenopus. And it's that, yeah, it's that kind of evil gray raised little dot that so many people yeah. see. And then the frog ends up, uh, ends up dying. Um, yeah, actually there's, I'm looking at a study here. Yeah. Yeah. Mycobacterium. Um, what'd you say? It was Marinum or Marinum was a pronunciation. Mar- I, I mean, I, I say Marinum. I don't know which one it's supposed to be. Okay. But yeah, yeah. I just, I found, I found a, a, a case on here. It, it looks like it was pretty bad. <laughs> it looks like it's pretty horrible. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's it, it is bad. In the event that you know, in your like you said, you said it's it's inevitable. Um, so I'm going to assume that I've lost frogs to this before. In fact, you know that those Uafaga pamilio blue genes that I mentioned earlier in the show, uh, one of them did develop that, and I remember just mm-hmm. trying to treat it topically with um, what was I using? Um, I think it was, someone recommended to me, I think it was a triple antibiotic, which I obviously I see now probably wasn't effective at all. If you do Mm -hmm. see, you know, a granuloma on your frog, I mean, obviously you said you can't see what's inside, but if you see something on the skin, a lesion develop, like, are there any other possible causes of disease besides this? Or is it pretty much a lock that Uh, this is what's going to, what it's going to be? No, no, absolutely. There, you can have fungus, non-BD fungus can cause granulomas. Um, parasites can, so granulomas are one of the main lines of defense for amphibians. And so many, many different things cause granulomas. So no, if you see a granuloma on, you know, on your frog, that does not mean it's absolutely going to die. So I, I apologize if I gave that impression. That's not the case at all. But it 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 does need to be on your differential list. Um, you know, your things that you're considering for it. And again, you know, it it's not. There is no effective antimicrobial treatment that can be used really in amphibians to to cure it. Um, and then you know the other thing that. We always, as veterinarians, we always have to be aware of um, diseases that are called zoonotic, right? And so zoonotic diseases are diseases that can be passed from animals to humans. And um, mycobacterium can be passed from your frog to you. Um, it doesn't cause TB. It doesn't cause tuberculosis. Um, you know, like we think of historically and hundreds of years ago in, in the human population. Um, some of the, the listeners who are, you know, more familiar with the aquarium side of things, there's something called aquarium finger. An aquarium finger is essentially a localized granuloma, um, on the, the, your finger that is due to mycobacterium. Because again, people, these mycobacteria are everywhere. Um, and if you have scratches um, on your skin, that can allow them to get in and it causes a very localized uh, inflammatory reaction. Um, you know, those oftentimes have to be surgically removed because there's very few antibiotics that actually deal with the mycobacterium. Um, and then the concern is always if you do have anyone in your house that's immunocompromised, you can have more occult disseminated mycobacteriosis in a human due to some of the atypical mycobacteria. So it is something that people should be aware of. You know, they have to be careful, wear gloves when you're working with these things. If you, if you do have an odd swelling on your finger that doesn't seem to go away, see your, your GP. 
Uh, and then especially if you have individuals in the house that are, you know, significantly immunocompromised, you know, keep that in mind. Uh, but it's just, um, it's one of those diseases that I think everyone should be familiar with because it is, it is extremely common. And, you know, as you mentioned, odds are, if you have been involved in the hobby, any side of the amphibian hobby, uh, for any amount of time with, you know, more than just one or two tanks of animals, there's, there's, a, there's a really good chance that you've experienced this in the past and may not have known it. Yeah, that's in, that's intense. I I think of all the things that we've discussed so far, this seems to be the the most uh, the most uh, disturbing, just because of the lack of um, effective treatments. I guess. Yeah, it's a, it, it is a you know it's a tough one, but again, usually it is a um, in most cases it's a disease of quote unquote older life for these animals, um, because again, that usually for a substantial period of time. Uh, it's kind of remained dormant and then, you know, there's a change in things and then it pops up. Um, there are, and I don't want to freak people out. We won't spend too much time on it, but there are a subset of mycobacterial infections in amphibians that present as very rapid, uh, acute hemorrhagic deaths. Um, and, um, those are more commonly seen in Xenopus, um, though it has been seen in other frog species. Uh, but those are much more infrequent than the very typical kind of low grade chronic mycobacteria cases that we see in most amphibians. All right. You took my horrific view from before and you, you amped it up by 10. (laughs) 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 No, I, I mean, the disease process is, I mean, it's funny because if you take out the whole revulsion to to disease that all, I mean, all of us have, I'm just, you know, we've developed it as an adaptation to avoid disease. It's actually really incredible. I mean, in, in a way it's beautiful when you think about it, that an organism can be that successful and, you know, can't be, you know, can't be done in by antibiotics or, or anything else. That's it's, it, 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 there's a beauty to it, I guess is what I'm saying in my own weird way. No, I mean, I, I, Listen, I, I do this day and I absolutely appreciate the beauty of it. I mean, this is, you know, it, diseases, um, at least infectious diseases, which are, you know, what I study and research and, and do from day to day. I mean, it's essentially when you think about the world, every living thing is trying to make its place and stake its claim and keep going in spite of all the other living things and the bacteria and the viruses and the fungi are not any different. They have evolved. This is what they do. Um, and in the ideal system, you know, there's a nice balance of everyone together. Uh, but when you start altering that ideal system and you, you know, you have animals in captive situations and things, it, it changes that balance. And I mean, the other thing is that in the wild, there are animals are going to die from disease all the time. And it's, 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 it's a baseline deaths that happen. And it just goes for the most part entirely unnoticed unless it's a mass mortality event. But when we have these small beloved collections of beautiful amphibians in our house, we know when every single one of them dies and it, it, it changes the whole it changes the whole nature of the scenario. And it, 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 that's why I think, you know, there's so much of that negative stigma to disease because these things are sometimes killing what we love the most. And 
you know, so, and then people get uncomfortable and they don't want to tell people, but it is, it is all, it, essentially it's all life interacting with each other. And it's just about how we deal with that. Yeah. It, I mean, it's, it's such a human thing because obviously we, we perceive disease as a reality, whereas other living things don't, they're just kind of, I guess, blissfully unaware and, you know, until they experience symptoms and pain. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I know we went down the list and I had one more thing kind of just come up into my head and I wanted to ask you about it. Salmonella. Now, salmonella yeah. is, I mean, salmonella often goes hand in hand with, with the exotics hobby, obviously, um, you know, reptiles and amphibians. Well, I don't, well, that's what I want to ask you about is amphibians. I know that reptiles have been cited as being vectors for salmonella, um, I mean, obviously, there are more there are more easy ways to get salmonella, like through through poultry. I think I read some study about how something like I don't know, like ten percent of poultry is infected with salmonella. Um, but have you ever encountered salmonella in in a necropsy or an examination on a frog? And if if so, has it been a common thing or a rare thing? So um, salmonella in reptiles and amphibians is a you know a really important topic, uh, and. Um, we know a lot more about salmonella as it relates to reptiles. And um, for the most part, um, if you have a reptile, you have salmonella. Like there, salmonella is a normal inhabitant of the reptile gastrointestinal tract. It, it you know, that's, it, you have to be aware of that. You have to wash your hands. You, you know, you have to be careful when you're dealing with reptiles, you know, that, multiple there have been multiple times that you know the cdc has gone chasing salmonella outbreaks and you know brings it back to pet reptiles whether they be bearded dragons small turtles you know it, it it's happened enough that you know it's there uh, we don't have as much of that information as it relates to amphibians um there just haven't been as many fecal culture studies done um Salmonella in reptiles, um, you know, at least for the pathology disease side of things, um, it is an infrequent cause of disease in reptiles. So it is a, again, another zoonotic disease that the animals can pass to humans, but for the, the reptiles, the salmonella is usually not a big deal unless there's some other stressor event or something else going on. Um, and, uh, I think salmonella is much less common in amphibians than it is in reptiles. Um, there's many other so salmonella is a gram negative bacteria. There are many, many other gram negative bacteria that we much more frequently find in amphibians. Um, Aramonas is a big one. Pseudomonas is a big one. Uh, Providencia is a, happens pretty frequently. Uh, we, we don't see a, we don't see a ton of, of salmonella in, uh, in amphibians. And so that's, and that's probably, that's a good thing. Uh, you know, one people aren't, you know, I hope people aren't holding their frogs or their, their salamanders as much as they potentially would be holding uh, a reptile because, you know, they're really not made for that type of interaction. And so I think because of that, then the number of potential, uh, exposure events of people to salmonella from amphibians, you know, is, is it drops quite a bit. Uh, but you know, we're still in the tanks. We're still in the substrate. We're still, we're still being exposed. Uh, but I do think salmonella is, is much less of an issue in, uh, in amphibians than it is in reptiles. Uh, that being said, there are other bacteria that 
do seem to be a much more of a concern in amphibians than reptiles that are of just as important to human health. Uh, and one of the big ones that we've learned more about recently is brucella. And brucella is a, is a nasty genus of bacteria um, that can cause pretty significant disease in a number of different species, uh, including humans. Um, and um, there have been more and more cases recently of brucellosis or brucella infections in amphibians. And so um, whenever you're working with your exotic pets, whether it be your amphibians or your reptiles or your exotic birds or exotic mammal, I mean, I mean, any, just be careful, wear gloves when you're working with substrate, you know, uh, wash your hands, wash your hands a lot. Uh, and if you ever, you ever notice, you know, an odd thing in your 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 fingers, or your hands, where you might have had a scratch, and you've been working in your tanks? Uh, don't ignore it for too long. Uh, go to urgent care. Go to your GP if you need to. Um, and the this is hard. I do realize it. I've had to do this myself, but you you have to try and explain to your practitioner that you work with these exotic species and you may be exposed to other things that they may not normally see. And normally for most, unless the practitioner works with reptiles and amphibians themselves, they're going to be, they're going to think you're weird that you've got all kinds of crazy diseases now. And that's not the case, but they do need to change their scope of view um, when they understand the types of animals that you may have at home. You know, that's, it's funny that you bring that up because I, I I actually wanted to bring it up too. Yeah, you're right. Like, if I, I mean, I, I could imagine myself and other people actually being reluctant to mention this sort of thing if you go to the doctor because the doctor's going to think you nuts, and who knows, yep. you know, what that is, what could potentially happen because, I mean, you know, not everybody is equipped to be able to understand this type of situation. And that's not a reflection on, on, on anyone in the medical profession at all. But, uh, you know, for example, um, you know, Mike, my, my daughter's into small mammals. Okay. She has, she has a hamster, she has uh, two rats and that's, that's her thing. When you tell the doctor or anybody else like, oh yeah, we have rats at home. They look at you like you have like you have plague and you have you know all, all these sorts of crazy things and it's like no they're, they're they're clean they they came from a breeder they they cost like almost 150 bucks each um no they're you know obviously they're still rats but um you know we're not living in, in in filth here and it's it's a hard conversation to have with any doctor that oh by the way i keep you know 100 frogs uh, in my house and uh you know i have fruit flies and i have uh, roaches and whatnot it's a hard conversation to have with anybody, especially your doctor. And I mean, I, I, I mean, I'll tell you, I, for one, I would honestly, I would be reluctant to, you know, uh, offer more and inform, more information than they, than they needed. No, I, you're, you're absolutely right. And I, and I understand it. I've experienced it. I, I, I appreciate that completely, but, um, there's, uh, you know, at, in my training as a veterinary student, um, you know, this is more common on like the, the, uh, you know, the small animal side of things, or even the, the equine or, or bovine medicine, the horse and the cow stuff is if you have an animal and it's sick, you have to think of the, that the common things happen commonly. Or if you are standing in a field 
in North America and you hear hoofbeats, 99 out of 100 times, the hoofbeats are going to be because of a horse. Um, and that's what your clinicians are thinking. They are thinking of the really common things that happen commonly. Um, and the thing is, you know, that hoofbeat that you hear, though, can sometimes be a zebra and not a horse. And for the vast majority of the time, it's always going to be the horse. But you have to remember about the zebra. And if you don't tell your practitioner that you work with these animals regularly, they may not start thinking about the zebras. And if they don't think about the zebras, there could be really important diagnoses that are missed or mistreated uh, in a way that would end up hindering uh, you know, your life. Um, for wildlife biologists, uh, wildlife veterinarians, pathologists, you know, in a lot of places, they encourage you to carry a little card in your wallet that says, I work with wildlife and may routinely be exposed to, and it lists all of these obscure diseases that you may get if you work with wildlife that your typical doctor would never even think of. And so, it's hard. I agree. It's a hard discussion to have. Someone's probably going to look at you like you're nuts. They're probably going to talk about you behind the closed door. But remember that ultimately it's your health and being a little uncomfortable with the doctor who doesn't understand how cool these species can be and how great they can enhance your life. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's worth it to your health to, to prevent then potentially being sick with something that they're going to miss. No, it's good advice. It is. It is. It's just such an, it's just such a weird topic to bring up. You know what I mean? It's like you go in, you, you discuss your eating habits and whatnot. And then if, if you really get sick, that's the other thing is I could, I could imagine someone getting really sick might not even like forget being embarrassed or whatnot, but someone might not even think to mention it because it would just seem so out of the ordinary as well. Right. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Well, Oz, um, I think we covered everything. Um, I mean, is there anything else you want to add before we, uh, before we end? No, I think this is great. You know, I, I, there's always more stuff I can talk about. You know, we, we can do really weird, obscure things at some point in the future. Or, you know, there's a, we can have a, a super long talk about, you know, chytrids or what there's, there's a lot of really important things in amphibian medicine and you've had some amazing, uh, you know, speakers come on this show and give lots of great viewpoints on things. So uh, I, I really appreciate you having me back and, and I'm always happy to come back and, and talk about more things if there's interest. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's, it's always a pleasure. Yeah. I'm glad we got a chance to really dig more into things. Cause um, you know, like I said at the beginning, a lot of times during the course of an episode, I, I have more questions. Like I, I go into every episode, every interview with, you know, with some kind of preparation, I have a list of questions and, you know, guests, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we, we kind of plan what we're going to talk about first, but ideas always come to me during the course of the interview. And I, I, you know, towards the end, I'm like, man, I'm like, I got to get him back on. We got to talk more in detail about some of these actual cases. And I'm glad we got a chance to do so. And of course, you're, you're always welcome to come back on the show. Thanks. Yeah, this is this is a lot of fun. I love talking about amphibian stuff. So. Yeah. So again, I mean, I know we mentioned it in the last episode, but again, for the listeners, if anybody wants to um, get any diagnostic tests or reach out to you and find out more information about necropsies or fecals or anything like that, how would you uh, recommend that they reach out? Uh, the easiest thing to do is, um, you know, it is 
just Google me. Uh, I, you know, my last name is uh, very uncommon, um, and so if you Google my last name, um, which I'm sure you'll have in the info for the the, the notes for the podcast, and uh, frog or salamander, I'm I'm going to be the only one that comes up. You'll find my my Florida contact info. Just shoot me an email, um, you know, and I'm always happy to help uh, you know, help come up with plans for doing diagnostics, you know, how to get the samples and then, and then uh, you know, how to, to work with things uh, once we get an idea of what's going on. Excellent. All right, everyone. I want to thank Oz for coming on and being my guest again. A um, lot of cool stuff to take away from tonight's episode. I, I um, you know, I'm always interested in amphibian medicine and uh, it's nice to get the, you know, get an expert opinion on all these things because you know a lot of it's stuff that we talk about but um it never hurts to really broaden your horizons and understand you know the how what where and why of the disease processes because it's such an important thing so all right everyone other than that i hope you guys enjoyed this episode and i will catch up with you again next time